It's time for the May 19, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review, a personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on National Bike to Work Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And, as always, the mutt that made Milwaukee famous, Mahler, the fake news dog. <laughs> Every week he shows up. I know. It's amazing. It is amazing. Got to give him credit. Yeah. You know, he may fall asleep during the show, yeah. but at the beginning, yeah. he's all piss and vinegar, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good boy. <laughs> yeah, there he is. Today, we'll be talking about the Pope's pet problem, airbag shrapnel, optical frequency combs, ruby red slippers, and so much more. But first, did you hear about the Oscar Mayer name change with the Wienermobile? I did. Yeah. I, I, They've I, named it after your father now. Yeah. It's now the Frankmobile, <laughs> yes. and I'm thrilled. They're promoting their Franks. Their Franks. Yeah, and they decided <laughs> they're not promoting their wieners, which is inexplicable it, to me. It, it really is shocking. Yeah. When you've got quality wieners... Like now, they do. You'd yeah. think they would be talking about them all day long. Yeah. They don't yeah. want to call them hot dogs, apparently. No. I have no yeah, idea. Uh, Mahler, Mahler, yeah. Yeah, Mahler. Well, he, he and his buddies got together. Yeah. That's what activism will do for you, Mahler. Yes, that's right. Speaking of food, do you like pasta? Do you like a little bite? Can now? we stay on the wiener thing for a while? No, uh, pasta. I love pasta. Yeah? Well, I, you, can have, you ever have wieners and, <laughs> and pasta? No. I know some people that have, yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, you cut no. up some hot dogs, you know, like, like little chunks of no, pepperoni no. in there. I, I love pasta. That's, you do? That is That is one mm-hmm. of the, my weaknesses. From the Washington Post, there's a pasta crisis in Italy. Uh-oh. A debate over a rise in pasta prices forced the Italian government to convene a crisis meeting this week. Pasta prices have gone up 17.5% this year. The price jump is more than double Italy's consumer price inflation of 8.1%. And comes as the price of Durham wheat, which is used to make pasta, Let me guess. dropped. Dropped. It didn't rise. It dropped. Okay. They're raising prices. Sounds a lot like what goes on here in the U.S. Yes. They're just speculative. Yeah. In fact, consumer groups have accused pasta producers of gaming the system yeah. and filed an official complaint asking authorities to investigate. Yeah. Producers of pasta say a mix of factors, including high energy costs and supply chain disruptions. Another thing that sounds awfully familiar about Mm. the way Mm -hmm. our inflation prices have gone is driving up their costs, forcing them to charge more for pasta. And here, that wasn't necessarily true at all. It was just a matter of them, producers, taking advantage of a... Situation that was bleak, in my opinion, took advantage of a perception that everything was going up and ran with that idea and and essentially gouged us. This wouldn't be the first time pasta moguls screwed Italy. (laughs) In 2009, agencies raided top pasta makers over allegations of price fixing and fined them nearly $18 million. I'd like to have seen that, you know, raided a Pasta manufacturer. The uh, gendarmes showed up with their guns drawn. Show us your pasta prices. Speaking of pasta. Not a good joke. From BBC News, Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. You know, he likes the pasta. Oh, yeah. 
Pope Francis warned that starting a family in Italy is becoming a titanic effort that only the rich can afford. Mm -hmm. Italy has one of the lowest fertility rates in the EU, and births dropped below 400,000 last year, a new low. Wow, that is low. The Pope warned that pets were replacing children in some households, recounting how a woman had opened her bag and asked him to bless her baby, except it was not a baby, but a small dog. Mm -hmm. I lost my patience and told her off. There are many children who are hungry, and you bring me a dog, he said. Now, I just got to wonder how many kids the Pope has. Because, well, I mean, this is a guy who's not speaking from experience here. Yeah. And frankly, yeah. I like dogs more than, than kids. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Little kids. Yeah. You really want them running around the house? No. Whereas Mahler, no. No. I understand. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Pope doesn't get it. If you're going to go out to some fancy Italian restaurant with the Pope tonight, may I recommend a donation to KUCI instead? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial-free, free-form, free-speech radio, KUCI, 88.9 FM. Mm-hmm. From SciTech Daily Magazine, about 100 million years ago, a group of rogue moths started flying during the day rather than at night, taking advantage of nectar-rich flowers that had co-evolved with bees. Hmm. This single event led to the evolution of all butterflies. Scientists have known the precise timing of this event since 2019, I don't think it's that precise. You know, they, they're not there with a stopwatch or anything. It was 100 million years ago. But anyway, they knew the timing of this event since 2019. But now scientists have discovered where the first butterflies originated. Oh, wow. Researchers from dozens of countries created the world's largest butterfly tree of life, assembled from DNA from more than 2,000 species representing all butterfly families in 92% of genera. After cataloging some 19,000 butterfly species and piecing together their 100-million-year history, the researchers found that butterflies first appeared somewhere in Central and Western North America. Wow. Maybe well, right here in Irvine. It was 100 million years ago. Yeah. We were a swamp back then. Yeah, Could've They been. might have been fluttering around the cattails. Yeah, that's awesome. You ever pan for gold, Mike? Oh, God. At Knott's Berry Farm. Yeah, Knott's Berry Farm. There you go. Yeah, I was yeah. hoping you'd say that. Yeah. Who hasn't gone to Knott's Berry Farm and pan for wow. gold? That just puts like a, a time stamp on me right there. What's well, still there. You yeah. can still pan for gold at Knott's oh, Berry Farm. Oh, can you really? You put your own time stamp. I did. From the Orange County Register. For 170 years, the gold deposits along Sierra stream beds have been stripped of so much gold that supplies of the precious metal have grown scarce and are a challenge to find. But this year's spring's raging rivers have created what prospectors call flood gold. Mm. Fine-sized flakes carried by alluvial waters and then deposited as flow recedes. 
This winter's hard and heavy storms cause strong bursts of erosion, with rain pounding rocks near the load sources and rinsing gold downstream. Above-average springtime flows are churning up river bottoms, causing gold to be dredged from deep pockets and dense clays where the biggest nuggets may hide. Wow. The flood gold rush is swelling the ranks of amateur prospectors in step with the skyrocketing price of gold, which hit a near record of more than $2,000 an ounce this week, up from $1,700 last November. I knew a prospector when I lived in Mammoth. A gold prospector? A gold prospector. And he used to come into the restaurant a lot. His name was Earl, Earl the Prospector. And he had family roots in that part of of California, that Mono Lake area, and that's for for, uh-huh. for decades. In fact, there, his family roots went back to the time when the uh, L.A. Department of Water and Power wiped out landowners in search of water. And Earl hated people from Los Angeles because of that, because of what happened to his family. But he would come in. He was a gold prospector. If he were alive today, I'm sure he would be. He'd be out there with both feet in the water. He's a quite a character. Got into a fist fight. Maybe he was a faker. He got into a fist fight. Somebody said, you're not a prospector. Yeah. And he was exposed. He was not a faker. No, he was. You never saw any of his gold, did you? No, he didn't show me. See? Well, there you go. Proof positive. He got got into a... Hey, Mike. Yeah. I'm a prospector. You're a prospector? Yeah. Hey, I I know another prospector. I know Nathan Callahan, and he's a prospector, too. People from all over the world are coming in, said Albert Fossil of Placerville Hardware, founded in 1854. Placerville? Placerville, Mm -hmm. and the longest-running hardware store west of the Mississippi. They're buying pans, crevice tools, snuffer bottles, metal detectors, all the bare necessities to get you some gold. Gold! He said. Wow. You going to go out uh, panning? (laughs) (laughs) Well, unless it's coming down uh, through Laguna Creek, I don't think I'm going to be doing any I don't think it's going to make its way down there. (laughs) From Los Angeles Times, according to new research, almost 40% of forest area burned by wildfire in the western United States and southwestern Canada in the last 40 years can be attributed to carbon emissions associated with the world's 88 largest fossil fuel producers and cement manufacturers. In findings published in the journal uh, Environmental Research Letters, The study concluded that the emissions generated in the extraction of fossil fuels as well as the burning of those fuels have increased the amount of land burned by wildfire by raising global temperatures and amplifying dry conditions across the West. This growing dryness, or aridification as we like to call it, has caused the atmosphere to become thirstier for water, draining moisture from trees and brush and causing them to become more vulnerable to fire. The researchers were able to estimate that emissions from the major carbon producers contributed to 48% of the increase in the vapor pressure deficit observed over the last 120 years. Previous research has shown that increase in the vapor pressure is strongly associated with an increase in burned forest lands in the western U.S. and southwestern Canada. From there, the researchers found that the emissions were responsible for 37% of the 53 million acres of forest area, or 19.8 million acres, 
burned by wildfire since 1986. Mm. As wildfires in the western U.S. have grown in size and intensity and wrought unprecedented levels of damage on communities, the public has been left to cover much of the cost through higher taxes and utility bill surcharges. But at the same time, we know the fossil fuel industry has known for decades what the impact of their products would be on our climate. We hope that people who are in communities that have been affected by wildfires will see this work and think about whether they want to hold these companies accountable, said study author Christina Dahl, principal climate scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. So we got some evidence right here about what the damage has done, and we can figure approximately how much it's cost communities. We've been paying while the culprit, who's been causing the rise in temperatures, has gone free. Records record profits. By the way, this is one of those hidden costs, social costs of of fossil fuel that we never, except Nathan is talking about it now. For me, it's always been the supply chain part of fossil fuel story that is so devastating to our environment. And this is another example of why that matters. From The Guardian, six times the size of Yosemite, a new tribal ocean sanctuary off the coast of Southern California viewed by the Chumash people as their ancestral home is close to becoming the first indigenous-led initiative to protect the ocean and repair its damaged ecosystem. Good. The proposed site will be a co-management initiative between the Chumash, other local tribes, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. NOAA manages 14 national marine sanctuaries, but this would be the first in partnership with an indigenous group. The sanctuary would stretch from near the coastal village of Cambria, that's halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles, to just south of Santa Barbara County, encompassing 7,670 square miles of ocean, six times the size of Yosemite. Sanctuaries aren't national parks said Stephen Palumbi, a professor of marine sciences sciences at Stanford University's Hopkins Marine Station. They have a limited role in managing something like fishing. That would be sanctuaries. Mm -hmm. But they do three major things. They're a great nexus for combining interests of different parties, such as fishing local landowners and state fish and wildlife departments. They're also a structure within the federal government, which means they have access to budget and research resources. Good. Most pressingly, the new sanctuary would help safeguard the region against major industrial development like oil drilling, a battle that has dragged on for decades. Sanctuaries prohibit the discharging of waste material. Yeah. Here you go. They prohibit it, altering the seabed, disturbing cultural resources, and crucially, developing oil, gas, or mineral mining. They prohibit that. Fantastic. Having formally submitted the proposal in July of 2015, the Chumash are now close to succeeding. NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries is reviewing all public feedback and drafting a management plan to be released as early as this month. Wow, that's uh, great news. From the Washington Post, the Supreme Court declined to take up questions about the tech industry's liability protections in two high-profile cases, 
effectively putting the ball back in Congress's court to hash out whether or how to revamp the law known as Section 230. In a pair of unanimous rulings, the court opted against wading into the debate over whether social media platforms, including YouTube and Twitter, should be immunized from liability for recommending or failing to take adequate steps to crack down on terrorist contents. The cases, Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tomine, were the first times it directly took on the issue. But they didn't. But they didn't. <laughs> yes. The move marked a major victory for Silicon Valley companies, which have fiercely defended the protections amid a growing onslaught from critics in and outside of Washington who argue the law has shielded platforms from accountability for not policing and at times supercharging harmful posts. Now, if we had a regular Supreme Court, I'd say they made the right decision here. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be involved. They want to send it back to Congress. Congress should have stricter laws about this. Right. We should have more restrictions on this. We should have regulations, right. laws. Right. And that's why we have regulations. So there would be some sort of process that we can punish someone yeah. if they're putting terrorist content online. Right. This is the, the debate over whether or not Twitter or Instagram are publishers that they're content providers yeah. in the way that a newspaper couldn't get away with what you just mentioned. Exactly. They or would Fox be held, didn't. They, they would be, or Fox, and you would be held accountable. It's certainly a debate worth having. We don't regulate what people say over a telephone. Yeah. But this is different. This is a public platform where a lot of people will see what is, what is published. On well, their the site. debate should be how different it is. Yeah. And that really should take place in Congress because they're responsible for putting legislation together. Right. It's, it's an example that's similar to fossil fuel in the sense that they, these are industries and companies and corporations that are so powerful, immensely powerful, that to be held accountable is beyond the ability of the system as it is currently constituted to be able to do. We should be able to regulate fossil fuel. We should be able to regulate, in some manner of speaking, for the public good in, in these communication platforms that are so incredibly powerful, and yet we seem unable to be able to do that or well, willing to We do ourselves it. have to take responsibility, too. Yeah. We tend to pass it off on the companies, but yeah. We've, yeah, yeah. we've got to take responsibility for the content that we're posting. Yeah. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. KUCI. I've never heard him say it. So vigorously, uh -huh. he really leaned into that one. From our good friend Michael Hiltzik at oh. Los Angeles Times, on April 19, in introducing House Republicans' stillborn proposal for negotiations to raise the government's debt ceiling, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who's a Republican from out there in Bakersfield, Bakersfield. has said this, you know, 
If you gave your child a credit card and they kept maxing it out to the limit, you wouldn't blindly just raise the limit. You'd change their behavior. Oh, my God. The exact same thing is true with our national debt. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. And McCarthy either doesn't know this, it's, which would be a shame no. to be, have him have that much power and not know it. He doesn't seem to be able to understand that the debt ceiling isn't about limiting future spending. It's about paying bills already incurred, just as a credit card statement reflects purchases already made. He knows that. Yeah. He and his House GOP colleagues' refusal to raise the federal debt ceiling to accommodate the spending they've already incurred would be tantamount to his fictional families refusing to pay their existing debts. If they persisted in this refusal, they'd end up in bankruptcy or perhaps in jail for fraud. If our national government went along with Kevin McCarthy's Republican plan, our national punishment would be severe. Higher prices for goods and services, mortgage rates soaring, and creditors like Social Security recipients, Medicare providers, and businesses with government contracts going unpaid. That's what Kevin McCarthy really at the core is talking about when he says we should just let the government debt slide. This has been a re very, very regular Republican refrain every time they're out of the White House. Spending is too much. Well, Trump drove up the deficit more than any president has and have a problem with that. And to your point, it's not even about that. It's about what did we already spend and are we going to make good on paying off what we've already borrowed money for? It's long since time that a U.S. president treated the debt ceiling not as an instrument of sound fiscal policy, but as an obstruction to being fiscally responsible. Yeah. If McCarthy and his minions refuse to honor their own fiscal obligations, Biden should disregard them. That's his most valuable bargaining chip. Yeah. If passed is precedent, the Constitution and the Supreme Court would have his back. From the Associated Press, a Tennessee company is heading for a legal battle with the U.S. auto safety regulators after refusing a request that millions of potentially dangerous airbag inflators be recalled. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is demanding that ARC Automotive Incorporated of Knoxville, Tennessee, recall 67 million inflators in the U.S. because they could explode and hurl shrapnel. At least two people have been killed in the U.S. and Canada, and seven others have been hurt as a result of defective ARC inflators. At least a dozen auto manufacturers have the allegedly faulty inflators in use, including Volkswagen, Ford, BMW, and General Motors. General Motors is already recalling about one million vehicles equipped with ARC inflators. Owners will be notified by letters starting June 25th, but no fix is available yet. Have you had anything recalled on your... On all my cars, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's always something. Yeah. It seems like they find something and they, yeah. you know, they're being cautious. I've had a lot of recall notices, and then you go in, and I think, I think they even use it as a way to get you in, <laughs> because you go in, they say, "Oh, it's not your car. We looked at your VIN number, yeah. and I gotta say, uh, GM has my VIN number, so <laughs> why am I getting this?" But you know, well, bless their hearts. By the way, Mr. Callahan, you could use a, a muffler bearing. 
Muffler bearing? Yeah, your muffler's not spinning. <laughs> From Scientific American. Astronomers and physicists have long used a laser-based sensor called an optical frequency comb to study the material makeup of the cosmos. But the COVID pandemic has pushed the optical frequency comb from the world of space and physics into healthcare. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Optical frequency combs are lasers that simultaneously shoot pulses of light at multiple frequencies. Because these super fast pulses are precisely spaced along the light spectrum, from infrared through the visible colors to ultraviolet, they form a series of peaks on a graph of the frequencies that look like the teeth of a comb. In a recent study, scientists proved the optical frequency comb can detect COVID from a breathalyzer-type test where subjects simply blow into a tube. This potentially paves the way for fast, non-invasive diagnostic tests for a multitude of diseases. If optical frequency comb breathalyzers do prove themselves in further research, they could make a huge difference in many clinical settings beyond rapid testing for COVID, including chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, mm -hmm. kidney failure, mm -hmm. lung and pancreatic cancers, and even Alzheimer's disease. So this is a good test. Can you imagine that? You blow in a tube, yeah. they can tell you everything that's wrong. Yeah, it's amazing. But... From National Geographic. Lyme season in the United States and the risk of infection by the black-legged ticks that carry it is growing. Lyme disease, especially with half of Americans now living in tick-infested territory. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we don't live in tick-infested territory here, not yet. No, we, we've driven little buggers. If they ever were here, we've driven them out, I'm They sure. seem to be in the north of this country, mm. more in the Midwest and in the, you know, New England-type states there. Without immediate antibiotic treatment, Lyme disease can cause debilitating heart and nervous system issues, arthritis, and other complications, making it difficult to cure. The rising number of cases have reached epidemic levels in some in, in the U.S. Some 476,000 cases are reported each year, accounting for about a billion dollars in medical costs. However, with several vaccines in development, researchers are optimistic they will be able to prevent the disease within just a few years. And that's good news. A human vaccine developed by Pfizer is in phase three trials. Moderna is working on an mRNA version. And researchers at Mass Biologics are developing an anti-Lyme antibody treatment. So an immune system treatment for this. This is one of the most interesting diseases that I know of, the history of Lyme, where it came from, that's a fascinating story. But for years, the medical establishment fought the, the diagnosis of Lyme disease because it manifests itself in so many different symptoms that for, for years they rejected the fact that it was even a disease, that it was psychosomatic. There, it, this disease has a remarkable history. There's a couple of good documentaries I would recommend. Under Our Skin is one, and the other one is The Quiet Epidemic. And you're right. It's good to hear that the medical establishment is now embracing it. But people who, who had it for years and years and years were told they didn't have it or that there was something wrong with them. So it's good to hear and, and to actually see uh, real progress being made on, on Lyme disease. From the drive... 
Some car makers are leaving AM radios out of their new cars, and others plan to follow. What? Yep. Car companies blame interference from EVs' drivetrains. But the answer isn't that simple. Already, EVs from Audi, BMW, Porsche, Tesla, and Volvo are sold without AM radios, and it's been that way for years. But Detroit's big three, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis... I'm not used to saying that. I want to say Chrysler. Is all that the what time. it is now? I didn't Stantler, even know that. Okay. Uh, Chrysler is now Stellantis. Okay. They merged with an Italian company. The big three have produced or currently make EVs that include AM radio, even on flagship models. The main problem is that AM radio has fallen out of favor in Europe, with stations shutting down in mass from France to the Netherlands and Russia. The frequency has largely been superseded by digital audio broadcasting which is an MPEG-1 form of radio broadcasting that has better audio quality and choice of stations. In the U.S., AM audiences have been in decline, but not enough for American car makers to leave AM radios out of their products. AM radio is popular in the U.S. because AM signals travel further than FM broadcasts, and they're cheaper to transmit allowing them to cater to audiences in sparsely populated areas. Yep. That's why you have the Midwest listening to Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, unfortunately. exactly right. And a bunch of, a bunch of evangelical programming. Yeah, well, it's cheap. It's, it's cheap, cheap broadcasting. Cheap. Meanwhile, from Radio Inc., a bipartisan coalition of the United States Congress introduced the AM for Every Vehicle Act. No. Huh? Yep. Legislation that would re require federal regulators to mandate AM radio in new vehicles without an additional charge. Now, you can see the bipartisanship you can. at work yeah. here. Because there's Patriot Radio, right? That's a national, it's sort of a Fox News yeah. kind of thing. There's, so they there's a lot to, of yeah. very conservative AM yeah, stations yeah, out there. Yeah. Plus, liberals are more likely to see this as something that would help people because it's a source for emergency warnings okay. yeah. and sporting events. Yeah. So they don't want yeah, to be on yeah, the yeah. wrong end of this issue. Yeah, that's true. For decades, free AM broadcast radio has been an essential tool in emergencies, a crucial part of our diverse media ecosystem, and an irreplaceable source for news, weather, sports, and entertainment for tens of millions of listeners, said Gen Senator John Markey from Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. From the Wall Street Journal. The Supreme Court ruled that Andy Warhol was not entitled to draw on a prominent photographer's portrait of Prince for an image of the musician that his estate licensed to a magazine. We're following up on we this. We have been following about, this one for a while, right? Yeah. This state, this well, we yeah. talked about it when the Supreme Court accepted this, yeah. and now they've ruled that Andy Warhol was at fault. The ruling will limit the scope of the fair use defense in copyright infringement in the realm of visual art. The vote was 72. Hmm. Now, sometimes I, I wonder why, in this case, why didn't the Supreme Court pass on this one and let Congress figure out what the regulations of fair use are? Mm -hmm. Because they're not exactly clear. They, they're yeah. they're, they're kind of clear. They're, they're subject to interpretation, and maybe we need to be more precise about what they mean. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, writing for the majority in this case, ruling against Warhol and against fair use, uh, said the photographer's original works, like, like those of other photographers, are entitled to copyright protection, even against famous artists. 
She focused on the fact that Warhol and Lynn Goldsmith, the photographer whose work he altered, were both engaged in the commercial enterprise of licensing images of prints to magazines. Well, if that's the case, then Congress should rule on that and saying in the case where some where the two people are, are working in commercial enterprises on the same subject, then there, there would be a, uh, a violation of copyright laws. In dissent, Justice Elena Kagan. So you have Sotomayor versus Kagan here. Kagan, joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, wrote that the decision will stifle creativity of every sort. It will impede new art and music and literature. It will thwart the expression of new ideas and the attainment of new knowledge. It will make our world poorer. And I think what she's directing this at is just up-and-coming artists who want to uh, take other art and build something from it. And that's going on. Yeah. It's been going on for years in collages. But, yeah. but still. I, I'm... I'm... I'm sympathetic to the idea that it's hard enough as an artist to make a living and and have those opportunities hijacked in some way. Uh, feels like there needs to be something to address that. Mm. But and on the other hand, you're right. And we live in a world where this is going to happen. Yeah. This is going to what, what well, you're, when you're stealing a sample of someone's song and repeating it and, and you end up with more money than the, the writer of the song that you've stolen, and there's something wrong with that system, yeah. and it needs to be regulated. Yeah. This is where Congress comes in, yeah. and I'm just questioning whether it was the Supreme Court's... Uh, maybe they're trying to kick Congress's butt on this and have them yeah. rule on this a little bit stronger. Yeah, From Reuters News Service, a man has been indicted by a grand jury on charges of stealing a pair of ruby red slippers worn by Judy Garland in The <laughs> Wizard of Oz. The slippers were on loan to the Judy Garland Museum in the late actor's hometown when in 2005 someone climbed through a window and broke the display case. The shoes were recovered in a 2018 FBI opera sting operation. This is 13 years later. But no arrests were made at the time. So now, five years later, this week, Terry Martin was indicted on one count of theft of a major artwork. Martin is 76 and lives 12 miles south of the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Garland wore several pairs of the ruby slippers during production of the 1939 musical, but only four authentic pairs remain. When they were stolen, the slippers were insured for $1 million, but the current market value is about $3.5 million. God. The museum staff, staff hopes the slippers will return to Garland's hometown after the legal case ends. I'd want a pair of those slippers. It would be kind of fun to have a, some ruby red slippers. You're watching <laughs> I, the I, I Wizard think, of Oz yeah, and a group of friends yeah, and say, hey, hey, see those slippers? Yeah. I stole a pair. <laughs> and, and Nathan, I think you could pull it off, too, if you were, you know, I don't know how big her feet were, but maybe. Oh, I don't want to wear them. I, I would put them on, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah Mahler now, Mahler. There's another thing. You'd have to get, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be cruel. <laughs> I don't know. Right. To put, but they, they had little heels on Yeah, they had little heels they on They weren't bikes or anything. No, no, he, but could, he was, could get around. I think he'd enjoy it. I, I think he'd be more, more likely to chew them apart. 
and finally, okay, whew, from the Guardian, Dylan Reeves, a Michigan boy who stopped a school bus from crashing after the driver lost consciousness, leapt into action because he was the only passenger not distracted by his cell phone. In a video that was captured by a bus security camera, Dylan can be seen rushing up to the steering wheel after noticing the driver had passed out during a medical emergency. Dylan stepped on the brakes, steered the bus away from traffic, and eventually brought it to a stop as other students yelled in panic from their seats. Someone call 911 now, Dylan said. Dylan's parents had refused to buy him a cell phone and said their son's heroic actions were reason enough to hold off on getting him a phone even more. When asked to comment on his parents' decision to withhold from giving him a phone even longer, Dylan shrugged and said, Whatever. My parents are old school. can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review Podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.